the Golf Inclined podcast, which uh, as always looks at the game of golf in general, um, both the professional and the wider game. Uh, but in in specific terms, we kind of explore the mental side of the game. Uh, and maybe we drift into the mental side of life. But my name is Robin Seeger. Uh, for you, if you've not heard of me before, or if you're new to the podcast, and my interest in uh, golf has stemmed from my interest in the uh, the human condition as it relates to being successful and uh, winning, at getting a hundred percent out of our abilities and uh, leaving nothing in the bank, as they say. And in the course of my work, I get asked to speak at conferences all over the world. It's ostensibly, I get asked to speak as a, a motivational speaker. I'll get these requests and they'll say, uh, Robin, can you come in and motivate the audience? And uh, I, I always say, oh, it's fine, but uh, motivate them to, to do what? And they go, well, to be motivated. And I, I don't think motivation uh, can be just given to an audience or to an individual if that individual or audience doesn't have a goal or a purpose um, that they are seeking to achieve. I think the purpose of any good uh, talk, specifically motivational talks, isn't to transform your life, but it's just to challenge your beliefs and challenge your thinking of what may be possible. And I meet golfers uh, who are 16 handicap and I say, what's your best ever handicap? And they go, well, 16, uh, I'm never going to get down to single figures. And that becomes their belief and it almost becomes a, uh, they can't see themselves as a single figure player. Uh, and yet I, I've got one or two very good friends who are scratch golfers uh, in their 50s and they don't practice a lot and they're naturally gifted golfers. I think we can assume that. But they see themselves as scratch golfers. So if they go out and were to shoot four or five over par, they would uh, go out the next time and work, I mean, very hard to make sure they're getting their handicap back in the right direction. And where does that come from? Where does that absolute inner belief come from? And I think, uh, again, I'm going to express personal views here from my work in research is there was a writer called Dennis Wakeley who once said winners win because they uh, visualize the rewards of success and losers lose because they visualize the pain of failure. And I think there's something in that. I think the most successful golfers I've met, um, I've got a few things in common. Number one, they... Have, they're used to winning. They won when they were juniors. They, when they took up the game, they they won. Uh, two, they may play for fun, but they play to win. You know, so they are always, no matter how casual a game you're having, uh, they they're out to win. Whereas some of us will go out and just enjoy the company, and nothing wrong with that. But they see themselves as good golfers. Now I used to joke when I spoke at some golf events, um, I'm a scratch golfer, uh, trapped in the trapped in the body of a of a 12 handicap or something like that. And as you get older, your confidence can decline. You think, well, maybe I can't uh, play as well as I did. So I wanted to reflect on two things in this uh, podcast today. It was one is to just ask you to stop limiting your belief as to how good a golfer you could become. You may never be a single figure golfer, but you may be a low double figure golfer. You know, you may surprise yourself and realize that when you just kind of let go and stop uh, obsessing over every detail of your swing and just trust in your belief in yourself to do what needs to be done. How often in match play matches, uh, particularly, do you see 
you know, high handicap golfers producing unbelievable shots at clutch moments in the match. I remember playing in a, a match against this fella in America, Michigan once, uh, it was a four ball. And this guy, um, every tee shot, he'd be in the woods or this, that, the next thing. But his recovery shots were just off the scale. I remember once he hit into the woods and he's about 210 yards from the green, but he's in the woods about 30 feet, 30, well, not 30 feet, 30 yards. And uh, the next thing, I'm with my partner and we're saying, well, well, and I said to him, well, we'll win this hole. And that gets us into a strong position with four to go or so. The next thing we hear what sounds like a, a crack, but we both knew it was a golf ball being middled out of the center of a three wood. And this thing just came out and it climbed and climbed and climbed and hit the green, it went about 10 feet and he thanked the putt. And uh, you're thinking, well, how did that player produce that shot? Because he's not that good a player. No, he may not appear to be that good a player, but when a player can deliver a shot like that, it shows me one thing, they have the ability. And if you can demonstrate that you have the ability once, you know where this goes, you should have the ability again and again. I was reflecting today um, before I was preparing for this podcast on um, what I was going to talk about. And I wanted to talk a great deal in depth about uh, pressure. And then I thought, well, I've done that before and I will certainly come back to it. But rather I wanted to reflect on a question which, you know, golfers ask each other. And one of the questions is, who would be your perfect four ball? And I think I've answered this before. I always say that, you know, people would say Ben Hogan, Tiger Woods, Jack Nicholas, Bobby Jones, Sam Snead, Gene Sarazen, um, Tony Jacklin, uh, whoever. I mean, just some legends of the game. And I don't, I, I named three friends, you know, Sean McDonald, a farmer from Scotland, uh, my, Mark Ritchie, a great friend from uh, Chicago, and a dear friend of mine, Matt Barr, who was in an earlier podcast, uh, who lives in um, Charlotte, North Carolina. And I've known these guys over 30 years, and I have such fun when I play golf with them. They're, we're all like-minded, we're all competitive, but fun, very good fun on and off the course, win, lose, or draw. So that that's my thing. The other question I get asked occasionally is, uh, oh, what's the greatest shot you ever saw? And golf magazines do this, and they talk about truly miraculous shots. And I remembered recently talking about Cameron Smith's two-putt at the 17th. I think that'll go down a legend as one of the greatest two-putts in history under just phenomenal pressure. But... What's the greatest shot I ever saw? Well, uh, when I was a little boy, about six or seven years of age, I used to go with my dad to the golf course and sometimes he'd say, do you want to caddy for me? So he had a trolley and I would pull the trolley around. Um, I figured we're getting some father and son time. He figured he was getting a cheap caddy. He never asked me for a yardage, come to think of it, though at seven years of age, you know, I just, had no idea what he was talking about. And uh, my father was a very good golfer. He played in the British Amateur, I think, in 1950. And uh, he hit a long ball. But this was in the day of um, persimmon woods or laminated drivers and uh, clunky shafts and things. And we were playing at a golf course in Scotland called Erskine Golf Course, which is still there, golf club, lovely club overlooking the River Clyde. And um, he was playing in a four ball with some other fairly good players. But my father 
had a very large face on his driver. I mean, larger than standard. And back in the day, I remember um, long after he died, finding his drivers and, thing, and trying to hit them. And I couldn't hit them to save my life, the stiff shaft and stuff. And, but he hit a long ball. And we were at the, um, let me get this right, the sixth, the seventh tee, I think, tee box, or the sixth or seventh tee box, where you hit up, the fairway's sort of going upwards, and it's sloping from right to left. And uh, they're not a very long hole, it's still a drive and a five, drive and a six. And my father always had extra long tee pegs, so the ball almost seemed to hover above the, the face of the club, not quite. And my father hit this drive, a lovely drive down, I remember it very clearly, uh, that left sl a slow draw on it. And it landed on the right-hand side of the fairway and didn't run down to the other side of the fairway. And uh, one of the fellows in the group turned to my dad and he said, uh, oh, you only hit it that far because you tee it so high. And it wasn't quite a Mexican standoff. My dad looked and said, no, 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 it's nothing to do with the tee. And the guy said, uh, I'm sure it is. And my dad then said, look, I can tee it twice that height. It won't make it. It's the same result. And the guy said, okay, let's see it. And my father uh, had a plastic tee. Um, it was an extra long one. So he got another extra long one and jammed one inside the other. So the ball was now teed a good four inches off the ground. I mean, a good inch and a half above the top of the club face, uh, maybe more. And I remember suddenly it all went very, very quiet. And uh, I, my dad was there and he kind of stepped up and looked down the fairway. He teed off uh, last and uh, the three guys are watching intently. And I've, I'd never seen a ball teed that high. I'm only seven years of age. What do I know? And I remember um, the next thing was my father he had this downward press of his grip so the hands would just drop down a quarter of an inch and there'd be a slight forward press and he would just turn his head very slightly to the left that's the trigger and then he drew the club back and he hit the shot and it followed the exact same trajectory as the first drive and it landed it bounced not far short and it rolled right up to within about two or three yards of his first drive and he turned to the fellow who said you see Tea length has nothing to do with it. And he looked at me and he winked and off we went. And uh, when I reflect in that shot, I sort of reflect that there was my dad um, about to hit a second shot he didn't need to hit with his seven-year-old son who was worshipping him because he was my hero at the time. And he took on that shot under the watchful eye of four people, one of whom was his son, and everything right down to the uh, the pressing of the grip, the turning of the head, everything I can remember vividly. I can even remember the sweater he was wearing. It was a green plaid uh, sweater that had a hole in the armpit. And that's how vividly it's burnt into my imagination, uh, or my memory, I should say. And the reason it's the greatest shot is because he called it. And I think, what did he have to lose? Well, a bit of ridicule from his pals and maybe... I don't know, a little sort of disappointment to his son. So that's the greatest shot I ever saw. Um, I've seen many great shots thereafter, but that one has burned into my memory very powerfully. So, uh, and you know, my father continued to play very good golf until he died, and he was 52 when he died, sadly. Uh, so he never, we didn't get to play more rounds uh, or as many rounds as I would have wished, but I 
really think the time we had together was great fun. The only thing I would say for my dad, uh, even when I played golf at university, and he was very pleased to hear that, uh, whenever we play golf together, if I hit a bad shot, all he would ever say to me, your head's up, keep your head down. And I'm sure that wasn't the cause of the problem, but there you go, keep your head down, good advice. Uh, well, that's it for this week. And uh, until we uh, meet next week, um, if you're interested in learning more about the game of uh, the mental game of golf, please visit my website, seagagolf.com. The first lesson is free. There's a 13 week program. If you're professional and you'd want to work with me one-to-one, uh, drop me a note and we'll see if we can have a conversation about that. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, have a wonderful week. Mm-hmm.